All right. Welcome to episode 28 of Know Your Enemy. I'm Matt Sittman, one of the podcast co-hosts, and I'm here with my friend Sam Adler-Bell. Hey, Matt. Excited for this episode. Me too. It was a great one. It was so much fun. Yes. So what was it, Sam? Well, we had the two co-hosts of the You're Wrong About podcast on, Michael Hobbs and Sarah Marshall. And what we talked about was basically their show and moral panics, which is something they talk about on the show a lot, and how moral panics and the American right intersect, which it turns out they do in quite a lot of ways. Yes, that's right. And we're not going to give you their full bios now because there's an introduction to the conversation where they talk about how they got to know each other and the origins of their podcast. So we're going to get right into things. And before we do, there's just one or two other uh, comments to make, which is we talk a lot about uh, two of their early episodes. One is called Satanic Panic and the other is called Stranger Danger. The Satanic Panic episode they did really is about this panic that like witches were running daycare centers yeah. <laughs> in the late 70s and 80s. There was a famous court case about it. It was a big story at the time. And obviously you can see how that might connect to some of the current moral panics and conspiratorial theories uh, out there. And The Stranger Danger, we talk about that a little more, give a little more background in the show, but that was to, just, again, in the late 70s and early 80s, people thinking that millions of children were being abducted, never to be seen again in the right. country, which, of course, none of these things were really true. Right. And and this is why if, when you were a kid, you, your parents probably gave you a talk about how not to talk to strangers and not to yeah. get into a car where someone's offering you candy. Or, Sam, especially a van. Yes, don't get in a van. <laughs> Do not get in a van. Yes. And so uh, both of those figure a lot into our conversation, um, and it goes a lot of interesting places. And really, you know, um, we won't give too much away here. We end up talking about QAnon. You can kind of see how that figures into... Um, some of the themes they talk about a lot on the show. But I just wanted to say one of the takeaways, if listeners are wondering why we wanted to talk to them, I think what really comes out in this conversation, among many other things, their intelligence, their charm, their wonderfulness, it was so much fun to talk with them. But they really help flesh out what was in the kind of cultural atmosphere as mm -hmm. America was turning right. Yeah. And you can really see that if you know a preponderance of people in the country come to believe that society is just filled with people ready to like kidnap and abduct your children, that it's filled with Satanists, with you know, witches running daycare centers, just like the, the, like the country is filled with people out to get you. Evil sociopathic people who want to kill, eat, and abuse your children. Yes, how that can fuel a political movement that says, listen, we're going to give you your guns. <laughs> we're going to cut your taxes. You're going to have your property rights. And you can send your kids to whatever school you want. It's like, you know, it's kind of lifting up stakes and saying, we're not really in a society anymore. Right, right, exactly. Like, how can a society be generous and decent and marked by solidarity if you think everyone around you is a kind of Satanist or sociopath or, or you know, some, some other horrible thing just kind of waiting to get you or your kids? Right. But it was a lot of fun, and we want to get right into it because it's a, you know, a robust conversation. And so uh, what are our housekeeping items before we do, Sam? Well, we just want to tell people uh, thanks to all the listeners, especially we've gotten a bunch of new listeners this uh, month, um, and remind people that they can sign up on Patreon for $5 a month to get all of our bonus episodes, which we are trying to do two of a month along with two main episodes. 
And for $10 a month, you can get both those bonus episodes and a free digital subscription to Descent Magazine, who sponsors the podcast. And we want to thank as well our new producer, Jesse Brenneman, who's doing just fantastic work. And it's Thanks, been Jesse. fun to work with him. Yeah. And of course, as always, we want to thank Will Epstein, a.k.a. High Water, who is has composed uh, the music that you listen to on Know Your Enemy. That's right. And uh, of course, do check out You're Wrong About in the show notes. We have links to their podcast, their Patreon, their merch. So give them some love as well. It was really generous of them to spend so much time talking with us. Michael and Sarah were really lovely. Charmers. Real charmers, that's true. So with that, should we get to it, Sam? Yes, we should. Enjoy this uh, episode with Know Your Enemy and You're Wrong About Together at Last. Great crossover episode. Yeah. <laughs> Welcome to Know Your Enemy, Sarah Marshall and Michael Hobbs. Hello. Hello. The stars of the You're Wrong About podcast. <laughs> yes. We are the stars. The glitz and the glamour the talent. is ours. <laughs> yeah. And Mike is also the producer. He's chomping on a cigar and, and drinking bromo backstage, <laughs> whatever that is. Oh, really? I'm doing a whole light show in the background. I'm, I'm adjusting all the levels right now. Yes. Mm-hmm. Very technical. You're Mr. DeMille. And your Norma. It's very tough. <laughs> well, we're really glad you were willing to come on our podcast because, uh, well, just by way of backstory, I did the thing where I was a fan and slid into Michael's DMs and told him how much I loved You're Wrong About. And it turns out he actually listened to Know Your Enemy. Yeah, I was so excited. I was I was totally chuffed to get this message because I had literally just finished like an hour long conversation with my boyfriend about you guys' sort of wrap up 2020 episode. And we were both talking about how much we liked it. I would say you were chuffed to bits, arguably. And if not to bits, then at least to... to gravel smithereens yeah and it was uh it was really a treat to hear from you yeah yeah and we kind of cooked up this scheme where we realized in strange ways there were some interesting intersections between our two podcasts Mm. or that sometimes we were circling around you know not identical questions and themes but but ones that had some overlap a few of your episodes in particular and we're going to get to all that but why don't we just start by can you two introduce yourselves? Who are you? And give us the gist of you're wrong about and maybe how it started. I don't know the backstory. Sarah, you want to do it? Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll do my part. I know me. Um, I guess I could introduce you, actually. That would be a nice change mm. of pace. You two should introduce each other. Okay. Mike is a five foot six Pisces. Let <laughs> me do it. So, <laughs> Mike is a five foot six Pisces. Um, he's from Seattle. He has, like, an untold number of degrees that he keeps pulling out, like, Mary Poppins's bag, which is, like, some of our listeners find quite funny that Mike will every so often offhandedly be like, I have a psychology degree. And we're like, what? <laughs> so, yeah, he's been alive for an unclear amount of time, but he, on this show, is functioning as an early millennial, born yes. in 1982. Two, the first millennial. You're the first millennial, Yeah. So he worked in international development, which I still am not entirely sure what that is. Nobody does. 
It's where you develop nations, right? Sure. <laughs> when people asked you at parties what you did, what did you say? I just said human rights and they never followed up. They're like, that's so great. You do human rights. <laughs> wow. <laughs> wow. Is that what warlords say? They're like, I'm in human rights. I know. <laughs> oh, yeah, they, they say, I do, I, I do micro development. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, that's true. Yeah. And then for untold reasons, uh, pivoted to journalism and mm-hmm. became a powerhouse journalist who has written some of the biggest stories on HuffPost. And longest, yes. Some of them are very long. Longest and also traffic drivingest. And Trafficked. Also make people cry in the best weighingest. Um, <laughs> of which my personal favorite is Everything You Know About Obesity is Wrong. Is that the title? Yeah. It's yes. a great... Very I mean, you're wrong about. It's just an article that I love because it basically is about how the diet industry is bullshit and it makes people feel validated for mm-hmm. being who they are and not consenting to be tortured for their entire lives because of it. And so anyway, <laughs> yeah. at, a, at a certain point, uh, Mike decided that he wanted to do a podcast and he was trying to think about who to do it with. And this is where I will let him take over. Yes. Sarah is a recovering academic who That's true. grew up in Portland, Oregon. And has also been everything, like a dog musher. And... I've not been a musher. I've been a musher handler. Okay, musher yeah, handler. Thank you. You handle the musher and the musher handles the dogs? I handle the, well, the <laughs> musher and the dogs. But um, yeah, that's just the, the job title. I guess when you get your Iditarod armbands, because I've helped out in the Iditarod a couple times, there's various armbands and one is musher handler. And I have three musher handler armbands. Wow. So that I'm... is the technical It's title. real. Amazing. It's okay. real. I'll stop interrupting. <laughs> no, these are important questions. Yes. <laughs> and she grew up reading and writing Newsies fan fiction and mm-hmm. participating in other fan fiction communities and eventually started writing extremely insightful, incredible articles about mostly about the maligned women of the 1990s. And this is how me and Sarah became acquainted, is that in 2014, she wrote one of the best articles to this day that I've ever read. It's called Remote Control. And it's basically retelling the story of Tanya Harding from Tanya Harding's perspective. Mm. And all she really did in that episode, like she didn't have a exclusive interview with Tanya Harding. She wasn't getting secret documents going into archives. It was literally just reading what was already on the record. Mm. And saying, I mean, it was really sort of the, to me, like, it's really the article that started this wave that we're in of sort of recasting and retelling these stories of people like Lorena Bobbitt, Anna Nicole Smith, all these maligned women from the 1990s. Sarah's was really the first article that did that in any concerted way. And all she did was just lay out the facts of the case, that this was a woman who was experiencing extreme abuse. This was a woman whose ex-husband sold a sex tape of her without her consent. Mm. This was a woman who was trashed in the media as sort of somehow she was the villain in this entire story, when if you just lay out the facts of the story, she absolutely wasn't. Mm-hmm. And that's really mm-hmm. all that Sarah was doing was just like, uh, guys, let's let's just like circle back to this one and just tell it from the beginning. And... I wrote her on Tumblr and was like, this is an amazing article. I'm going to keep in touch with you. And I sort of followed her work. And we tried to work together at various points and nothing really gelled. And then in early 2018, uh, I wrote to her and I said, like, well, you know, you're doing this amazing work. And I'm also doing stuff like looking into the 1990s. And there's a lot of stories there that we've gotten wrong as a society. And 
why don't we record some test episodes and like see if there's a podcast here? And we just kept recording every Saturday. And now it's been like 115 episodes. Wow. Many Saturdays. Many Saturdays. I also feel <laughs> yeah. like I've been talking for like a year and a half. I kind of like seeing it as 115 Saturdays a little bit better in a way. Because then it's like, <laughs> wow. Because like, I'm very happy to have made all these episodes and I love them all. But also I'm like, wow, like. That's a lot of Saturdays that I have enjoyed. <laughs> well, that's, I think the two of you have a great rapport. That's one of the pleasures of listening to the podcast. But I think one reason I love the podcast so much is I wasn't going to out Michael's age, but I'm 39, <laughs> so I was born in 1981. I graduated mm-hmm. high school in, in the year 2000, literally. You've seen so much history. The yes. Albertville Olympics, time to die. <laughs> right, <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so I could tell I was about Michael's age, give or take, you know, that the, we were all in our 30s or something, precisely because so many of your episodes are like my adolescence, like razors mm, yes. in apples. Um, yes. Gary Condit, that episode, is one that yeah. the summer of 2000, kind of pre-9-11, uh, yeah. That was all that was on the news. Um, the O.J. Simpson trial, which you've done numerous episodes on. Mm-hmm. Uh, it just feels like all the bullshit stories that I grew up with are <laughs> what you're debunking. So I am I am like uh, a rapt listener. Well, it's also amazing with all those stories, too, that the research process for the show is just like read what was written at the time and then, you know, read any analyses that happen afterwards, like, what do we really know about what happened in, you know, the quote unquote Ebonics controversy or in Anna Nicole Smith or in all these stories? And it is really remarkable that you look into them for like 15, 20 minutes and you're like, oh, this was totally wrong. You know like, what I was, think is interesting <laughs> This was absolutely too. false. And I don't think this has even occurred to me in this quite so simple a way before, but I think what is happening is that like, we're looking at stories from the last era when people couldn't in the moment just go online and easily Google, like, you know, Tanya Harding, whatever, and just, like, find yes. some different mm-hmm. articles from some different places and derive their own opinions and then easily share those opinions. Because, like, you could kind of do uh-huh. it, right? Like, if you were the kind of person, probably, like, if I had been in college at the time, I would have been this kind of person who, like, you get on the alt.news groups and you like have a dialect connection that you can monopolize or you're, you're at a university <laughs> or something. And then maybe you have like a GeoCities site and you can write what you think about it or you can write a zine and you can hand mail it around to people. But the point is that like <laughs> the ability to just with minimal effort, just be like, I want to read what Time said. I want to read what Newsweek said. I want to read a bunch of newspapers. I want to find video. I want to be able to rewatch video, which people mm-hmm. couldn't do at the time. Right. Without yeah. like getting at like getting out a precious VHS tape, which I believe the blank ones cost like twenty dollars, and yeah. like recording <laughs> onto it from the news, and like recording over like you know Gilligan's Island or your wedding or something, <laughs> and just like this this reminds me of like I feel like a good like this was the '90s scene is the part in the commitments where they're putting the band together and they have to like. It's a bunch of Irish guys who just, like, haven't seen the musicians they're supposed to be emulating. Black soul musicians. Right. And so they're like, we're all going to go watch this video of James Brown. And so they go to the video store and they get the video and they, like, are allowed to use the TV and the VCR for, like, 20 minutes to watch James Brown in concert. And then they get kicked out and they have to, like, (laughs) remember (laughs) James Brown in concert. And, like, that's what it was like. And then we would go home to our caves and we would scratch images in the wall and we would eat (laughs) berries until we fell asleep. (laughs) 
you know, one other point to make at the start, one of the reasons we wanted to have you on the podcast, I mean, we've mentioned that you go back and lay out the facts of these stories that were kind of wrong and that linger in an incorrect way in the public's mind and in our yeah. social imaginations. But often they have, they take the form of kind of moral panics, the story uh, the stories you yeah. tell. Um, people get really exercised about something new that we're learning about or something just catches on in the media because, well, as you're pointing out, you know, stories used to last forever. You know, kind of pre-internet, there might be one story that was in the news for weeks at a time every night on the evening news on, you know, one of a handful of channels or maybe when cable news mm-hmm. developed. Yeah. You know, it was mm-hmm. round the clock coverage. Um, yeah. But often, so often the stories you're, you're talking about, well, not always explicitly political, they kind of have this reactionary cast to them, you know, like yes. mm-hmm. people, people reacting to things that are new or different or unknown and kind of setting back into like a defensive crouch or right. a, a, again, a moral panic of some kind or just getting exercised about it. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit about that. And since uh, maybe Michael, especially since you're a Know Your Enemy fan, like how you see some of the overlap before we get into some of the particulars. Yeah, I'll, I'll just say one thing too, which is what struck me listening to, especially the the episodes on like the satanic panic and stranger danger is how, how often it seems to be that the moral panic arises because there's something in the culture that the American mythos can't metabolize. Yeah, There's some cl- like a beak. Yeah, <laughs> it's trying to <laughs> trying to swallow something that we can't really ingest and we can't make sense of in terms of our pre-existing kind of idea of what our culture is, or what our people yeah. are. And just as a result, we have this kind of like traumatic, melancholic response that is, hmm. um, you know, just projecting that repressed anxiety and fear onto something else that's more tangible. And somehow, even if it's more crazy, even if it's more terrible in some way, more evil than the reality, it's comforting in some way. It can be metabolized in a way that the reality, which is sometimes more mundane, but more depressing, can't be. Which is almost exactly how ambergris is made. I don't know what that is. I don't know what that is. <laughs> That's the thing where I think it's sperm whales. This is, I mean, I'm getting all this knowledge from an episode of Bob's Burgers, but to be fair, that show is pretty accurate to most things. Yep. <laughs> um, if, a, if a whale, I think it's a sperm whale, swallows something, you know, eats a squid, and then it can't digest the beak. So the beak irritates its stomach, and it creates a substance called ambergris, which it eventually passes and then is used... And is very valuable and is used to make perfume because it's this very interesting, strong smelling and in large quantities, extremely stinky and and extremely valuable (laughs) substance that is created to coat something that the whale can't digest or figure out what to do with or get rid of. And so 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 ambergris in this metaphor is like the new right, right wing politics, mass incarceration, a bunch of things that get <laughs> moral, panics moral panics and moral panic coverage. Yeah. Yeah. Like also even on a small scale, like Tanya Harding is this because like there's a moral panic on on the scale of like if we take abuse claims seriously, does that, you know, if we if we show compassion to this woman, does that mean we should do it to women generally? Are we gonna find ourselves on that slippery slope? No, ambergris. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it's valuable too. It's it's, it's, it's TV, too. it's TV ratings, it's books, it's uh, it's, yeah. it's money go. in the bank. Just yeah. slice it up like truffles. Yeah. 
we'll we'll get into some of the particulars as we go along, but I there was a quote I had written down from you, Sarah. I think it was the Satanic Panic episode. Talking about child sexual abuse, kind of in the, as we learn more about it in the 70s, you said we wanted the threat to be outside the home. Meaning once we learned that, you know, most sexual abuse of children took place in the home, family members of some kind, people they knew, we would prefer to invent deranged conspiracy theory about Satan and Satanism than deal with that reality. Yeah, I think that's I mean, that true. Was, I, I thought that was just kind of a, a very telling line from that episode. There's where, like, I was right. <laughs> well, Boom. I don't know if I was right, but I'm like, yeah, it's nice when you said something three years ago and you're like, hmm, yeah, I concur. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's, uh-huh. that's what I was thinking. I was like, yeah, Sarah's good at this. Yeah. Oh, thanks, Mike. Yeah. And it's so funny that that was our first episode and we were like, we're going to cover the satanic panic and it's going to take about 40 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and it never went away. I mean, the the kind of the kind of yeah. stuff yeah. you got at in that is still very w- much with us. And yes, it's like an overture. It's like at the start of Moulin Rouge, where they play just a little bit of the Sound <laughs> of Music, and you're like, okay, uh-huh. it's exactly <laughs> like that. And, and just so, just as a little uh, flag for our listeners, we will get to at some point in this conversation maybe the the inheritance of that, which is QAnon mm. today. Yeah, I mean, one thing we have sort of discovered as we've done the show because we didn't set out to do this was that so many of the moral panics that we've gone through, it's like we we found the template, I think, in the 1980s, and then we just keep repeating the exact same template. So to me, the sort of er example of this is the quote-unquote Ebonics controversy in 1996, where essentially one school district in Oakland said, we have a huge racial gap among our students that the black students aren't getting as high test scores, they're not graduating as much, et cetera. What we're going to do to address this is we're going to recognize the way that African-American kids speak. It's now called African-American vernacular English or African-American language. We're going to recognize that as a legitimate form of communication. And our teachers are going to start sort of using that in the classrooms as a way to bridge African-American students to learning standard English. And there was all kinds of like literature at the time that it's actually better to teach kids using the dialect that they already speak at home to teach them standard English, right? To say like, oh, that's interesting that you say that at home, but the way we say that in school is this. And this was done on the recommendation of a task force. And, you know, it's just one school district, right? Like it's, it's not a nationwide thing. It's just one school district that decides to take this on. And the country freaks out, like loses mm-hmm. its mind. There were endless Larry King segments, endless news segments. It was like editorials in the New York Times. May he rest or whatever. Yes. May, may, may his shoulders relax. Yes. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, states started passing laws saying that it's illegal to teach Ebonics as a language. It's illegal to teach kids in this way. I remember hearing schoolyard jokes about this as a second grader oh, in yeah. Oregon. Like, the, yeah. I mean, it's, you know, the reach of this is just like, it's incredible to me, the amount of... It's incredible. It, it's like the, the country went into anaphylactic shock. Totally. And, you know, the 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 narrative that spread was just literally false. The idea was that they were going to teach white kids to speak African-American vernacular (laughs) English, like that they would be teaching it as if it was like Spanish or French. And these poor teachers went on CNN, went on Larry King, went on all these shows and said, no, the kids already speak this dialect. We are going to be teaching them standard English using a different method. And like the country could not hear it. It was incredible. It's like it just bounced off. And then you go back and you look at the actual resolution and you look at the actual footage and it's like they were screaming this and Mm -hmm. nobody ever stepped up. Like the most supportive you find in the sort of the mainstream liberal media 
of this Oakland school board is like, well, obviously what they did was ridiculous, but <laughs> maybe we're being a little harsh. Yeah. <laughs> like that's as close to a defense of it as you get. And I think what we see, and, and this is really changing now, but so many of these moral panics, especially at the time, came from the fact that like the media was controlled by like a very small number of people. Right. Like mm-hmm. if there were like uh-huh. 75 editors, you know, various like opinion page editors of various newspapers across the country, if those 75 people didn't think that your opinion was worth airing, like it just didn't appear in the national media at mm-hmm. all. Like it, it just uh-huh. was not available. I mean, I spent hours on LexisNexis looking for like any defense of this policy and it just did not exist. It, it it was not allowed at the time. Right. And so this is the kind of thing that we, you know, it has the same structure as so many other moral panics where the stakes are incredibly low, right? Like even if you think that what Oakland is doing is completely indefensible, it's one school district. And school districts do experimental things in education all the time, right? right? Like there's school districts that do like outdoor learning and they do like bilingual immersion. And some of these things, like the evidence for them is not great, but it's like, whatever, it's experimental. Like, let's see if it works. It's a pilot. Mm-hmm. But like, as soon as it's black kids doing right. this, we're like, no, like this, this threatens our culture. Mm-hmm. And this is the end of the universe as we know it. I mean, it's fascinating. Right. Well, and it was also based on the concept that AAVE has a grammar, right? And this idea of like, we're going to respect a dialect that is functioning as a dialect. And just this, con- I mean... It's it's also very revealing. Like it's it indicts who we were as a society at the time yeah. in a way that clearly we were also incapable of hearing as we were doing that. Right. Yeah. So I I think in some ways when I listen to you're wrong about I feel like you're digging into the cultural underbelly of the kind of po- political movements that Sam and I talk about more explicitly on the show. And it's so yes. telling how often the flashpoints are around race, as you're pointing out with Ebonics, or gender, as with Tanya Harding, or with sexuality, meaning various you know panics over gay men and- Predators. You know, predators, increasing visibility for LGBT people. So th- that's where I see some of the overlap. But one of the questions that follows from something, Michael, you just said, so many of the stories you unpack go back to at some point in the mid to late seventies or early to mid eighties and then into the nineties, which is the same time as the country was turning right. Yeah. Mm. yeah. It just feels like there's a bunch of stuff in the air and you're getting at one big part of it. And just like what you were talking about with, you know, 75 editors controlling the discourse in newspapers, what was happening that these stories caught on when they did? Was it, you know, the structure of the media? Was it a part of a broader shift in kind of the cultural atmosphere? Why were people so suspicious of each other? Why were we so ready to believe these panicky stories? I actually think the Kitty Genovese myth is really central to this, Mm. right? Because you can trace a lot of this stuff back to white flight. White Americans become convinced that sort of the inner city is irredeemable and there's Mm -hmm. all of these people. We didn't have super predators yet as a term, but we definitely had it as a concept. This idea Mm -hmm. that inner cities were crime ridden, the schools were bad, everything, you know, forced busing was starting to happen. White Americans start to move out to the suburbs and that allows, that sort of creates this vacuum into which all of these myths about the quote unquote inner city with all the baggage that comes along with that is just this sort of irredeemable place where crime is out of control and nobody cares about each other and the violence is just unrepentant and inhuman. And, you know, this is when we have, like, 
the Stanford prison study, and we have the myth of Kitty Genovese, we have the Milgram studies, we have this idea that like there's this growing sociopathy in the country, right. mm-hmm. and that we need to defend <laughs> ourselves against this idea that there's like humans that are inhuman, that there's criminality that's so unrepentant and terrible mm-hmm. that we have to build all of these societal structures around locking it out. And in and, order to protect ourselves from their inhumanity, we must act with inhumanity. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the story of Kitty Genovese basically is that, and this was a story that was told to me by my mother, who had been a teenager at the time of her death, um, and was told to me as, you know, as a tween, and, I, you know, something that I took and I believe was given to me with the air of, like, this is your inheritance as a female, like, as someone becoming a woman entering the world. This is what happens. And basically, the bare facts of what happened is that Kitty Genovese was a young woman living in Queens who was murdered by a random assailant who she did not know as she was walking home in the middle of the night at like three in the morning. When was this? This was in 1964. 64, okay. And this was initially a small news story and then became a major news story, uh, specifically in the New York Times, when it was given by the paper with the help of the police, the additional spin of there were 38 witnesses to this crime and no one attempted to call the police or to help or to do anything, which turned out to be untrue. Right. But there was something about the story which somehow in the telling and then in people's memories you know, turned from a crime that happened in the middle of the night to one that happened in, I guess, early evening in front of a crowd of excited spectators, like the mental image people developed over time of Kitty Genovese's death, probably helped by Watchmen, (laughs) was of someone stabbed to death in New York City as essentially a spectator event, because this is just what New York City has become. Yeah. I am Pagliacci. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, have that, I have that image in my head. I have the image yeah. of some big apartment building, everybody standing at their balconies, looking down, seeing this happening, and nobody doing anything about it. It's, it's, There's it's also vivid. an episode of Girls that depicts this, vivid, which is weird because it head. also puts it out there that Kitty Genovese was a lesbian, so it's like one truth and one lie. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, Kitty Genovese, this is a story that catches the imagination of Americans in 1964, never mind that people woke up and either attempted to call the police or shouted or to a large extent believed because they were seeing a part of the assault that happened in front of a bar that this was a fight between some kind of a couple and therefore none of their business, which is a a real real sweet society you have there in 1964. Um, right. <laughs> and never mind the fact that this happened in a residential neighborhood of Queens. Never mind, you know, all of the complexities of this actual story and the fact that if you mythologize anyone's death into something that serves as justification for you to move to the suburbs, then that's, you know, kind of a cruel final insult to someone who's already been murdered. You know, this becomes one of the monomyths of white flight, as Mike was saying. And I think that a lot of the other kind of pop psychology and sociology of the time is kind of angling to confirm this concept of like, people are bad, 
cities make people bad. It is okay to just like leave forever and take all the money and describe people in the most dehumanizing language imaginable, not because they're black and you're white or something. That's not relevant. You don't see color. It's just that cities, it's the cities. Right. Cities are doing it. <laughs> right. It's not racist. You know, that's a lot of a lot of magazine articles of the time kind of boil down to that. Right. There's a, there's a little bit of defensiveness even. Yeah, totally. it's it's I don't even know why I would have to be defensive. I'm so preemptively careful. It's the cities <laughs> that are doing it. Yeah. And also another thing that's really interesting to me is that as Sarah mentioned I used to work in international development. I lived in Copenhagen and Berlin for 11 years. And what you have now is you never really had this white flight in Northern Europe. Like in, hmm. in other countries, this didn't happen. This is a specifically American phenomenon. And there's other reasons for it. There's like zoning codes and all this other stuff that that plays sure. into it. But you're now seeing white flight happening in major European cities as they become more diverse. Mm -hmm. So because you didn't have the sort of the racial aspect in the 60s, 70s, 80s in those cities, they didn't have this kind of panic about crime. Right. And they're having that now, now that they're letting in more foreign-born population. Right. So it mm -hmm. is like not a coincidence that America is one of the only developed countries that had this panic and that you're now getting this like word-for-word -word same panic in northern European countries as they become more diverse. It's like there is something about mm -hmm. members of the majority that cannot handle like their kids going to school, like more diverse schools, seeing people of different races on the street, this idea that crime is rising because of diversity. Like, these are real, like, human drives. And so we build all these narratives up to make us think that we're being basically less shitty than we are for, like, moving ourselves and our kids out to the suburbs to escape these evil inner cities. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting, too, um, and this is this is me doing my own kind of pop psychology, but so what? It's our podcast. Um, yeah, but uh, that, that there's this there's a there's a bit of projection going on where white flight, you know, self understood good good liberal white folks moving out of the cities. Um, what they're projecting onto the inner city population, this idea that um, that everyone's isolated and doesn't care, and you know they see something terrible happening and nobody helps, and they make popcorn. <laughs> yeah, they yeah. make popcorn to watch, <laughs> and all of this. That's what they're doing, much more so than what people inside of cities were doing. You know, they're yeah. they're the ones moving out into the suburbs and participating in this kind of neoliberal atomi atomization, um, and they're comforting themselves with the idea that. No, this is what's happening to society. Society is coming apart and we have to go form our little platoons and keep ourselves safe. But in reality, they're just justifying participating in this, you know, political economic process, this racist political economic process and projecting their own their own anxieties and their own predilections onto, you know, the poor and the brown. Totally. What kind of a person could treat violent crime as a spectator sport? And it's like, why is it better if it's on TV? Like, yes. Right. It is projection. Like, I never boiled it. So thank you. I never really saw it that way before. But yeah, like if you're talking about families sort of sitting calmly watching someone be murdered as entertainment, like that's just the local news that you're describing. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. There's also something I also think that a really important aspect of the way that sort of moral panics have become increasingly central, especially to the Republican Party, but generally in American life, is the fact that the Democrats never really pushed back. Right. Mm, we're the worst. I was watching something last night that I've been like really looking forward to telling you guys about. So 
I am researching the PMRC, like the heavy metal hearings. I thought you guys would appreciate this because in 1986, Tipper Gore went on William F. Buckley's TV show, which I forget the name of, but like it's all, all the episodes are Firing on YouTube. Line. Firing line. <laughs> yes. She's on there, you know, pushing this extremely conservative moral panic about heavy metal music lyrics, right? And so she comes on and she's got all these examples from like Prince songs. And she she talks about like hot for teacher at one point. And mm -hmm. it's like, it's very standard moral panic stuff, right? Like the evil sort of underground people are coming for your kids. And the way that she couches it, it's fascinating watching it because she, because she's a liberal and she doesn't sort of want to be playing into these conservative tropes. Every sentence has like three or four sort of caveats. She's like, well, you know, I'm a liberal and I love rock and roll, but some of these lyrics. Or <laughs> I'm concerned about this music, but I don't want regulation. And it's a very complicated question and we think the market should decide. And it's like, it's just so convoluted. And then William F. Buckley, in response to that, he just says in very clear terms, he's like, I think that this music is pornography and it's child abuse and it should be banned. Yeah. And it's like, uh -huh. yeah, like that, that's a clear message. And there's this weird tension in a lot of these moral panics where Democrats are doing exactly this thing where they're contributing to the moral panic, but then they're sort of couching like what to do about the moral panic in these weird terms right. of like, no, no, we shouldn't be censoring music, but it's like Tipper you're saying that it's pornography. You're saying that it's causing teen pregnancy and teen suicide and rising crime rates. And yet you also think that the government shouldn't do anything about it. Right. 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 Like it, it's just totally mealy mouthed. And then Buckley, who's also just like a total asshole. And I believe totally wrong about this. At least like what he says is consistent. It's ideologically He's saying like, no, coherent. we should ban it. It's porn. This sort of reminds me of an example from the 90s, the way that the stranger danger moral panic contributed to the 1994 crime bill. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, of course, a lot of the moral panics that you talk about on some level, I feel there's a sort of like mass incarceration corner on some of your episodes, I feel like. <laughs> where it's like and how, does this, how did this feed into mass incarceration or the power of prosecutors? But one of the kind of poster children of a, of a kid who was killed by a stranger in California was Polly Class. Mm. K-L-A-A-S. And while arguing for the 1994 crime bill, Clinton zeroed in on this case and it mm -hmm. became very important to the argument they were making. And her father then started campaigning with Clinton for mm -hmm. the crime bill. And there was a there was a memo that was circulated in the Clinton world. And basically, this is what it read. It said, the kid, Polly Klaas's father's, quote, support for the administration's anti-crime efforts is invaluable to us, not mm -hmm. just in the coming weeks as we push to pass the crime bill, but over the long haul as we seek to prove that Democrats are not soft on crime. Oh, God. So so the moral yeah. panic that, um, you know, I know from listening to your episode on the stranger danger, which was was really uh, very very helpful to Reagan mm. in the 80s. Yeah. And, you know, and you, you guys talk about how he appeared at the end of one of these TV movies about one of these uh, um, uh, abductions and talked about all the missing children using these bullshit statistics that you guys have talked about. But by the 1990s, that stuff was so deeply ingrained in the culture and in the media and stuff that, you know, the Democrats, in the same way that Tipper Gore had to do that triangulation when she was talking to Buckley, the, the Democrats were like, well, this stuff is live and we've got to do it ourselves. And ultimately, yeah. <laughs> the crime bill was dedicated 
in Polly class's name. Um, mm -hmm. I'm getting this from yeah, um, yeah. Paul Renfro's book, Stranger Danger. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, I've spoken to him a couple of times. He's great. Well, let's, why, why don't we take a step back and talk about the Stranger Danger episode a little more? Mm. Because um, I, Sam mentioned Reagan's appearance at the end of a, a kind of television movie, but the movie was about Adam Walsh, correct? Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, and I'm and I'm sure anyone over the age of thirty has watched at some point his father's show, John Walsh, America's Most Wanted. Yeah, mm -hmm. right. And so, Adam, when was he kidnapped or abducted? 1981. So he was kidnapped in 1981. Um, he was later found dead. They found his head, as you pointed out, like on the side mm -hmm. of a highway in Florida. Um, his father becomes a crusader for missing children, right? Mm -hmm. Missing and exploited children. And Sam pointed out that the statistics they use were just, I forget whether Michael, it was you or Sarah who pointed out that it would mean like one out of every 40 children in every elementary school. Yeah. One of the numbers was 1.2 million children were disappearing every year, which is like, every year. I think it was something like five or 8% of all children in the country were disappearing, <laughs> right. never to be seen again. Right. So it's you know totally overblown. But one of the really interesting things you do is go back to some of the roots of this language about children. Uh, you take it back to Anita Bryant in the 70s. Mm. And Jerry Falwell, some of what you're dealing with in these episodes really goes back to the 70s in the rise of the religious right. And you can see with the satanic panic, maybe that's fears of secularization, right? Like we were becoming a godless country. We turned our back on Christianity. And then you can see with the stranger danger that issues like what is happening to our children, uh, especially, you know, Anita Bryant campaign against gay rights and gay teachers, especially right in Florida. So I was just amazed that in some of the stories you tell, these characters, Jerry Falwell, Anita Bryant, that we've talked about on the show, make appearances. And I wonder if you could just give us some of more of that background or uh, some of what was coming out of the 70s and into the 80s as, as these things ramped up. Why is this stuff so useful to the, the sort of new cultural right? Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I think one of the great unspoken tenets of conservatism is that people in power have less responsibility than people without power. Like, I think this is one of the main differences between the left and the right, right? That we have like the Spider-Man principle and then conservatives have the opposite of the Spider-Man principle. The Green and Goblin principle. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, no, it's the Batman principle. It's that if you're wealthy, you're free to just like go around and beat up random civilians instead of just going to therapy like everyone knows you need to do, but no one feels brave enough to tell you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and also, I mean, I love the Batman metaphor because, I mean, many people have pointed out that like Bruce Wayne could do more as Bruce Wayne with his money than mm -hmm. he could as Batman beating up criminals, right? But he but, like, likes there's a very beating conservative up criminals. Mindset there. Yes. <laughs> I mean, I think the, you know, the Anita Bryant stuff and the Jerry Falwell stuff and all of this kind of rise of the right, so much of it comes from, I think there's something human about it, but also something very conservative about this idea that we don't want to look toward existing institutions. We don't want to look toward the family. And even the fact that like the vast majority of abuse, even the fact that you're far more likely to be abused by your father than some random stranger, we don't even want to look at fathers, right? Because that's mm -mm. like partly an authority figure. That is the last person we want to look at. If we look at fathers, this whole shell game just falls apart. Exactly. Exactly. Uh -huh. And we can't we can't see anything within the family or seeing any responsibility by established institutions because if the threat to children comes from within the family or comes from people that they know, mm -hmm. that implies a responsibility on the part of institutions. Like, or comes from the church, for that matter. Right. Exactly. Or, you know, 
soccer coaches or youth group leaders or other people that are going to have institutional power. And, you know, what we see again and again in the actual literature on child abuse and sexual abuse generally is that people use institutional power to make others not trust their gut instinct. Mm -hmm. Like you have these accounts over and over again of like, I feel a little bit weird about this guy sort of asking my son to go on a sleepover to his house, but you know, he's a priest. Like he, he couldn't, he couldn't be evil. He's a priest. Right. And you actually, you have this sense of discomfort, but it's institutional society given power that makes you ignore that discomfort. This is the gymnast's doctor. He's the great gymnastics doctor. Right. Right. And so many people came forward. It was like 13 different accusers came forward about Larry Nassar before anything happened. And again and again, it's like, well, you know, this couldn't be happening because he has all this He was at the Olympics. How could someone who was at the Olympics be systematically abusing their power? And institutional power also gives you a way to fight back against people, right? That it's much easier to smear accusers. It's much easier to spread rumors. You can use this credibility Mm -hmm. to say like, oh, you know, she's crazy. Like, you know how crazy people are. Like this happens over and over again with accusers. Right. But for the right to look into any of that or be interested in sort of the ways that child abuse actually happens, it would indict institutions of power. It would indict all of these existing power structures. And that is something that like, again, it just bounces off. It would indict the concept of a power structure. Yes. Right. Exactly. Uh, yes. Yeah, exactly. No, this is, this is something that I was thinking about also listening to your episodes was that the right's answer is always that the danger to our children, you know, the danger to our, our, our little families, it's not from institutions, it's not from the powers that were the power structures we're already embedded in and the and the ways in which that creates impunity for people at the top in various ways. The right's answer is always no, it's people who are completely disembedded from institutions that are the great danger. Mm-hmm. And who hate our institutions. People who hate our institutions, yeah. maniacs, people who have, who are just, just sort of evil and mm-hmm. who have no attachment to anything good and, and moral and righteous that, that, that we're embedded in. Um, you know, even Reagan during, it, it, when he was sort of prescribing his solutions to this supposed epidemic of of child abduction um, by strangers, uh, the solutions were all about restoring the nuclear family. Yeah. Yes. Mm -hmm. Because if you're in a nuclear family, then you're safe. But of course, that's the exact opposite of what you guys have found in your research about this, is that in fact, the nuclear family is basically the most dangerous place you can be. Yeah. If a kid is in danger of being abducted or or, uh, being abused, it's probably by their father or somebody who's very close to them. Um, mm-hmm. And so the, the solutions that they prescribe either exacerbate the danger, the actual danger, or, or are just hiding the ball because they can't face the fact that it's the institutions themselves that have mm-hmm. the rot inside of them. Yeah. Well, and this yeah. is another one of our many motifs is that the statistics for child abductions the majority of them come from non-custodial kidnappings, which normally last, right. you know, aren't, don't last very long. Right. I mean, the, there's something like 200,000 child abductions every year, which is an extremely high number. But the vast majority are like dad and mom are divorcing and yep. they're in the middle of a custody battle. And dad takes the kids on Friday and Sunday rolls around and he doesn't return with the kids. Yep. Yep. And mom calls the cops 
And I mean, I think so much of this comes back to, especially the way that the right frames these moral panics, it's like they always want to see things as less solvable than they are, Hmm. right? Because Uh if there's these evil people that are walking among us and if the inner cities are just totally rotten to the core, there's not a lot we can do about sort of the evil among us, like evil human nature. But then if you look at the way that child abuse actually happens, Mm -hmm. the way that you prevent it is like complaint mechanisms, you have sort of better background checks, you Mm -hmm. have more ways of checking in with kids, you have more ways of being open with kids, right? Like instead of pushing all this under the surface, you actually want to talk about it. Like, has anybody made you feel uncomfortable? Like bringing all that stuff out into the light, these are deal withable problems. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But the right also doesn't want to cast them as something you can actually do things about in like very specific ways. Right. It's like, ooh, it's this like inchoate evil that we couldn't possibly address. And I remember you guys Mm -hmm. pointing out that one during the uh, Reagan era um there was like a program that a busing company had like trailways had that was like a kid Mm -hmm. a kid who's who's abducted can get a free ride home uh on the bus (laughs) if i were a kid in those years i would have gotten abducted like four times a week depending on what concerts i wanted to go to exactly (laughs) um but but then i don't remember if it was reagan himself or somebody in his orbit who then said just imagine if we had to rely on the federal government to deal with this problem the trailways people set this up in no time so there's also this sort of way in which there's a libertarian kind of agenda, anti-government agenda gets mobilized. Yeah. And look at what Trump did with the rink at Rockefeller Center. I trust him. (laughs) (laughs) I think kind of the disadvantage the left or progressives, liberals have in some of these arguments, because it's more complicated to talk about structures Mm -hmm. and it's less emotionally satisfying. And I I don't want to go on a I don't want to go you know, down this rabbit hole too much. But I mean, I'm a Catholic journalist. So the Catholic sex abuse crisis, while Michael and Sarah, you were just talking these past few minutes, you know, the right wants to blame it on gay priests, Mm, basically. That's the problem. And not look at the structures of power, the clericalism. And, you know, Mm -hmm. the magazine I work at Commonweal, we say, well, you know, you need like lay people on boards to review abuse claims. You can't let, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. a bishop, a bishop who all his interests are towards covering up abuse or, you know, pushing a priest into the next parish and not telling anyone that sort of a, a cover up of abuse. You know, it, it's it's so hard to get people to really be invested in changing structures of power. And I think it's just a like rhetorically, it's a harder argument to make because it's complicated. Yeah. And it's yeah. not as simple. And again, as cathartic as just pointing to the gay person, pointing to the gay priest, pointing to the black person who commits a crime, pointing to, you know, whatever scapegoat you want. Scapegoating right. is easy and satisfying. It's another example where the thing that they're pointing to is part of the problem it, but it's their position that create that generates the problem which is yes. that by by <laughs> yes. the disallowing gay priests it creates this structure of secrecy and mm. the ability yes. to blackmail mm. priests into silence when they know something bad has happened if they're gay or they could be accused of being gay right. so the actual prohibitions inside the church against gay priests creates all this space for the institution mm-hmm. to protect itself it's the opposite. Mm, right. <laughs> it's yes. the opposite of what yes, they're saying. Exactly. Yes. Well, to me, like the most direct example of that is this current moral panic that we have about human trafficking. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Where, you know, any anyone under 18 who sells sex, who trades sex for anything, that's legally speaking considered human trafficking. Right. So these kids are not being kidnapped. There's no pimp involved. It's 
oftentimes just runaways from abusive homes. A lot of these kids are queer and yep. trans. They end up living on the streets. They end up selling, you know, a hand job for $20. That's technically trafficking. And in this case, they've trafficked themselves or their client technically is the trafficker. The client is technically trafficker in that okay. case. Yeah. Even though there's no third party, like there's no pimp mm-hmm. involved, which right. is actually like the vast minority of sex workers are involved with pimps. But so we have this thing that the right is like always constantly talking about save the children and human trafficking and it's a scourge of our cities and we have to raise awareness. And it's like 80% of the calls to the National Human Trafficking Hotline come from foster care facilities after the kids have run away from abusive homes. Right. And it's like this is the product of cutting funding for foster care relentlessly over the past 40 years and cutting funding for homeless services. Like if you Mm want to keep kids from selling sex on the street, have a place for them to go and have foster care facilities that they're not like physically running away from and putting themselves at risk because their foster homes are so much worse. Right. And like give them $20 or like give them money. (laughs) Like if you don't want kids to be selling the only thing they can to get money, then like Or the only way they can find a place to sleep. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But and also f- fix a culture that demonizes queer kids. <laughs> yes. You are the same yeah. people demonizing queer kids. I'm sure that having a Trump backed initiative fueled by fundamentalist Instagram moms will solve that problem <laughs> as, as well as anything could. Yeah, exactly. Right? Exactly. Well, we should get to. QAnon, which we're kind of circling around here a little bit. Uh, it's a trafficking. It's satanic. It's yeah. all of it at once. It's everything. It's all the hits. QAnon yeah. is like Santa's bag. Mm-hmm. There's something in it yeah. for absolutely everyone. But but just before we get there, I want to point something else out that we're that I think is an undercurrent here, which is the idea of innocence and childhood, yeah. which just seems yeah. so important to all of these panics and also yes. to the rise of the religious right and of Reagan. When we had... Um, Rick Perlstein on, we were talking about his concept of Reagan's, quote, liturgy of absolution, that so much of Mm. what Reagan did for America Mm. was tell America, you're innocent, you're good, you're innocent, you're good. Mm. You know, the 60s and the 70s, they wanted to tell you, you're bad, you're bad. The left said you're bad, but you're good, you're good, you're good. Mm. Everything you feel is good. Jimmy Carter put on a sweater and told you to turn down your thermostat. Yeah. (laughs) And I'm telling you that. Jimmy Carter (laughs) said the same thing, but he just said it in like... More scolding tones. (laughs) Yeah, or just, or I don't, yeah, I mean, I don't know. But yeah, just something about, yeah, I think that Reagan, his great gift, I think like Trump, he could do one thing and what he could do was truly believe the most pungent of the bullshit he was selling. Yep. Like, I think Uh he was his own best customer. I think that's right, too. Yeah, totally. I mean, one of the things that's really interesting, uh, the Showtime had that four- four-part documentary yes, on the Reagans recently. Yes, I love that. I never want to watch any new TV people watch, and Jamel Bowie tweeted about it, and I was like, yes. <laughs> I, know. I know. It's so... It's, we'll have to do a special episode on that. But oh, yeah. Because there's so much to say. But one of the things that uh, Reagan's son, uh, yeah. who was kind of one of the breakout stars of the series, he kept pointing out that Reagan seemed to really believe the bullshit Partly yeah. because yeah. he existed in this sort of, you know, movie-based fantasy world, but also that Reagan was, like, incapable of thinking structurally. Per yeah. yeah. Or other points. Like, like Reagan thought, well, like, I treat black people nicely. My policies mm-hmm. couldn't possibly have these effects in the real world. Or I want to help poor people. So my policies couldn't possibly, 
you know, uh, undercut the social safety net and, you know, amount to a transfer of wealth from, you know, the bottom to the top. Batman also thinks that he is helping, you know? Yes, <laughs> he thinks he's helping. Yes. Yeah. Yes. But it's 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 it really was a blinkered like inability to think in terms of structures and power at all. This is also a hallmark of sort of Tipper Gore ish liberal thinking, I think, on mm. this where uh-huh. you're conflating your intentions and the effects Right. Mm-hmm. That another thing we find in a lot of these moral panics is that many of them are driven by people who genuinely like are thinking that they're doing the right thing yeah. and are honestly acting out of philanthropic motives. Like a lot of the trafficking stuff in the 1990s was by feminists right. who had like a real critique of the way that the criminal justice system treated rape victims. And like right. they were correct about that. And they really thought that they were helping but they didn't look at the sort of second and third order effects right. of what they were doing. And they didn't think about the consequences of piggybacking onto the religious rights, sort of very well-funded, very powerful nationwide moral panic language, right? They yeah. thought that they could just sort of align on this one issue and then break off. Yeah. And it wasn't going to be going under its own momentum at that point. And that's just not true. And that so, never works. Don't never do that. Works. Like it if you're asking works. yourself, like, should I get in bed with, with the Christian right or... Some kind of conservative actor whose motives are clearly different from mine. Like, would it be worth it to push this specific agenda I have? The answer is no. It has never worked. (laughs) Luckily, we don't have any, like, uh, deeply embedded and cross-cultural myths about playing with powers you can't control. Um, (laughs) (laughs) It's nice, though, that it takes us by surprise every single time, you know? know. But doesn't that also then mean because people are sort of powered by the you know their belief in their own good intentions if you say something like you know all those statistics about the number of abducted children every year in the united states those aren't right that makes Mm -hmm. you seem like the bad guy yes yeah Mm -hmm. this is the problem there's always the as soon as you start talking about this stuff the answer that you always get is what's the harm right what's the harm on instagram of sharing this meme that says eight hundred thousand kids go missing every year and you know if it helps save one child then isn't it okay and it's like well you're basically doing you're doing the Tipper Gore thing, right? You're reinforcing <laughs> the crisis, even though you have a different solution for the crisis. You're reinforcing the idea that this is a crisis, and that's taking away from any discussion of like actual crises in the country, right? Right. Mm. right. But it is like you're the scolding. Like it sucks to be the person who's like, actually, that's eight hundred thousand reports of missing children, and most of those children come home. Like <laughs> yeah. you're a dick. Like yeah. Who, yeah. you have to write this long comment on their stupid Instagram post that they're not going to read. Like it's just it's in the same way of like the Buckley versus Tipper kind of debate. It's so much easier to just be like, this is bad, let's ban it. Yeah. Like, mm. that's a much more convincing message over and over again. Right. Buckley brings out the best mm. in everyone. I mean, I <laughs> think that... <laughs> Especially Gore Vidal. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I think that one of the things, and I don't really know how to do it in terms of human trafficking, but generally that we have found is that if you're going to try and take a narrative away from someone, you had better have something to replace it with. Mm. Because if yeah. you're going to take uh. something that was sort of a load-bearing emotional wall in someone's life, then, like, you cannot just offer them, like, nothing (laughs) as the alternative. I also think that there's also this thing of sort of all the splitting hairs that Democrats have to do to get their narratives out. There are actually, like, very left-wing narratives that are pretty simple. Oh, yeah. Right? Like, corporations are trying to fuck you. Like, the the model of shareholder value. Corporations are fucking you. Exactly. Like, you don't have to sort of piggyback onto these religious right moral crusades and be like, well, actually, I'm going to split hairs about what to do about this. 
there's real, actual, like, things we should be panicking about. Children going to adult prison. Like, I could do a big yes. tear-jerky thing about that. I could get statistics. And I think the issue, once we get to that point, is, like, not what narratives have the power to move us emotionally or even show us kind of a clear route to how to improve things. And this relates to what we were just talking about. Like, which ones get to the scale that the sort of human trafficking memes narratives do? Yeah. And it will be the one that exonerates the people sharing the memes. And it will also be the <laughs> one that, like, is not hemmed in by any kind of ceiling made out of facts. You yeah. know, so yeah. I, mean, I, I think something mm -hmm. that I also find really telling about the shape human trafficking has taken in terms of, you know, moral panics is that, you know, it refers to many different possible actual things that happen in the world in terms of right. how that charge get applied. On top of that, the term in people's imaginations also applies to a ton of different potential scenarios that have relatively little overlap with the actual things that they could, you know, that it could mean legally. And for many people, that involves the concept of young women being abducted, zip-tied, because God knows the conservatives don't use zip-ties, and... <laughs> put into shipping containers and then, you know, trafficked around the world. So, cause that's how sex work happens apparently. Right. And mm -hmm. you know, that I think I would just like to say that if we're talking about moral panic as a projection, like I, I can think of something that that sounds like to me. Yeah. <laughs> it's just, I just find it compelling that white women are so invested in a narrative where we're the ones actually who have like very present concerns about being snatched away from our families, yeah. put into literal ships, and then raped for no financial compensation for ourselves. Like that doesn't make sense as an industry. It does make sense as like a shadow version of something we know that we did. And that we know a lot of the same conservatives are absolutely obsessed with not thinking about and not letting anybody else think about. Because yeah. we've talked about on the yeah. podcast a lot, the 1619 Project is like yeah. the biggest, most dangerous and wrong <sighs> thing that the libs have done in, in forever. And we have to <laughs> yeah. protect our children and we have to protect yeah. our country from this false narrative. Do you know that every year 1.2 billion children dies from listening to the 1619 Project? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, one of the other sort of meta-narratives that we keep coming across is... The fact that there's this this idea that sort of white collar crime or elite impunity, sort of high level grand corruption, yeah. like people aren't concerned with it. It's too complicated. Like, does anyone really understand what Enron did anyway? Like, this is a very powerful idea in our societies that nobody cares about this form of crime. Mm -hmm. But then when you look into it, you find that it's it's exactly the opposite. It's because that isn't punished that we think that people aren't mad about it. In mm. reality, people are livid about elite impunity. Like, people read about the Fire Festival and Martin Shkreli, and people fucking hate People that hate yep. Martin Shkreli mm -hmm. so much, and people loved that Enron documentary. Yeah. Yes. Like, people are really mad about this stuff, and it's sitting right there as sort of, like, not a moral panic, but, like, a, a moral crusade, like an actual real thing in the world yeah and nobody it feels like nobody's really taken it up because we have this idea that it's too boring but like a lot of that stuff like the enron stuff the martin shkreli stuff like it is stealing and lying yeah it's actually mm -hmm. not that difficult to understand and you can very easily put it in terms of it's stealing and lying well it's not true that nobody's mobilizing the 
affective dimensions of or, or ideological dimensions of of that anger towards elites. I mean, that is part of what these mm. conspiracy theories are. You know, mm. yes. they're sublimated uh-huh. anger at elite impunity, yeah. and the yeah. idea is that you know it's not that the elites are just you know rigging the economy to upwardly redistribute wealth um, and keeping and and you know choosing not to deal with poverty and inequality it's that these elites are satanists who are raping yeah. children <laughs> and they're yes. letting each other and get away shoes with it out of them and that's how yeah. louboutins are made which is so insulting <laughs> to the craftsmanship oh god <laughs> yeah. oh god i mean QAnon does seem like it, it combines so many of these elements mm-hmm. and it's a yeah. really powerful thing and speaking of like load-bearing emotional walls <laughs> This thing, this community that people are involved in with QAnon, like it is a load-bearing emotional wall. It does mm-hmm. serve yeah. a really deep psychic heal. It, it it apply is applied to some really deep psychic wound. It seems in people who become attached yeah. to it. I mean, of course, some people are cynical and just using it to do you know, like these people getting elected to Congress and shit. But when you listen to some podcasts and read stuff about people who become involved or you hear people talking about their parents who've gotten caught up in it from Facebook or whatever, it's definitely playing some role and it, and it seems to be overdetermined by all these different psychological and political factors. What did you two make of QAnon as it emerged in the discourse and in our politics and in our culture the past few years? I mean, when I first started hearing about it, I was like, that kind of sounds like the satanic panic. And then, you know, I think really, <laughs> to me, the, this past summer was when it really went mainstream. And we saw, you know, the Wayfair <laughs> panic um, and also, you know, just the it feels like so long ago now. But like, I remember there being a ton of memes and I'm sure there still are going around on social media last summer about how your child is like. more likely to be abducted than to contract COVID or maybe it was like 600 and whatever. It was like six, six, you know, subtext. And, Mm -hmm. and just this idea that masks are a scheme to make your children more easy to abduct. Oh my God. I didn't heard that. Yeah, that was, that was big. Definitely last summer. Um, And I'm sure that it's still, you know, still big but maybe not quite as viral as as it was at the time um but yeah i mean it gets to me it just is the satanic panic it's like an oops all moral panics like box Mm -hmm. of captain crunch basically because it's like all the aspects of the satanic panic that never really died out and you know many of which just we did not reckon with we didn't reckon with it legally we didn't on any kind of large-scale culturally deal with the fact that like we really screwed up and and continue to do so for many years like i think in the past several years there has been a fair amount of media kind of revisiting either fictionally or in a documentary way what happened which is fantastic but like on a larger scale like we have not had a major reckoning with this the way that we have with other cultural moments that i think we feel less embarrassed by and yeah. in many ways, I just think that this is like the satanic panic went and took a, a disco nap and now it's it's back with us at full strength. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's also the thing to me, too, of the satanic panic and all this kind of rhetoric never really went away on the right. No. Like you can yeah. find through lines of the same stranger danger stuff. I mean, one thing we've said on the show is that this QAnon thing about, you know, kids being sold in Wayfair cabinets 
I mean, that's only like 20% more bananas than like the mainstream human trafficking rhetoric, right? Mm-hmm. Right. Like you hear about uh-huh. kids being bought and sold. You hear about them being sort of taken from one country to the other. Like there's posters in every airport warning us about the the warning signs of trafficking, right? We should be looking out for kids that have like bruises and look malnourished. And I have not been able to find a single case of a child being trafficked through an airport by a stranger. Hmm. Like this is a moral panic. Wow. But for the right, this has been feeding this beast on the right that is very easy to like wake up and just turn into something that's like a slightly twisted version of it. But like it's not that much crazier than what we've been hearing anyway. Especially as facts have become a partisan concept, right? Like now we have this ability to basically alienate people from even the act of fact finding or like caring about facts as a concept because and I'm really I I don't know what to make of this. I feel like we've had this very, you know, especially in the past few years, but this has been going on for a long time, this sort of to some degree cynical manipulation of constituents on the right, basically to be like, even if what we're saying doesn't make sense, even if these policies like seem to be completely screwing you, like facts are for liberals and they don't care about you and we care about you in some uh-huh. way that you, we're not going to be able to express by improving your life in any real way. But like, shh. Yeah. Yeah. Well, as, as someone who's just written a uh, 4,500 word piece criticizing Dr. Fauci using mm. facts. Oh. Um, I'll tell you, liberals <laughs> don't always like facts either. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. But I know what you, of course, I know what you mean, and we've talked about mm-hmm. it on the podcast. Uh, Michael and Sarah, or Sam too, have you ever heard of this Christian right organization called the International Justice Mission? No. Oh, aren't these so. the people that rescue sex workers in like Cambodia? Yes. Yes. Mm. Um, they've yeah. done raids in Thailand, uh, Thailand so brothels. They, they one time invited Dateline to do something with them in Cambodia, like film a rescue mission. And yeah, I think Nick Kristoff has gone with them too, yeah. Of course he has, of course he has. I mean, this is something when I was in college, like friends of mine, because I was a young mm-hmm. conservative, a young Christian conservative, you know, my friends went to intern and work for them, and then they'd go work for like Jim Inhofe on his Senate staff, you know? Mm. Right. Um, so like really deeply embedded in the right, this idea that there's a whole organization that does these international raids aimed at combating sex trafficking. I mean, that was started, I think, in the late 90s by a a right-wing Christian lawyer. And, you know, when something like QAnon pops up, I'm just agreeing with you that the seeds of this are so deep, especially on the right, Mm. but in our broader culture. And even when you think back to what was said about the Clintons in the 90s, you know, uh, yeah. it, it doesn't oh, involve yeah. trafficking yeah. in exactly the same way, but like Vince Foster, all the mm-hmm. you know the, the stories of Bill Clinton's security guard in Arkansas securing women for him in every hotel. Is that maybe some of the? I don't know what's true and what's not, but I'm saying it, it, this this conspiratorial mindset is so deeply embedded on the right that you know yeah. what we're mm-hmm. seeing with QAnon and with Trump and all that. It's not it's not new. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've actually looked into this, this international stuff. And it's like, if you think that, you know, sex work and kids selling a hand job on the street in a major American city for 20 bucks, like if you think that's driven by poverty, what do you think it's driven by internationally? Right. Like there's yeah. there's uh-huh. been cases where Western journalists will go over, including Nick Kristof famously did this, where he goes over and he paid to, quote unquote, buy the freedom of two sex workers in, I believe it was Cambodia oh, or Thailand. Yeah. And then he goes back like two years later and they're doing sex work again. Yeah. 
Because it's like... Because he didn't take time to fix the economy. Well, exactly. It's like all of these conservative policy prescriptions completely break down as soon as you ask, and then what? Right? Like, we Mm -hmm. have these policies. This is a big thing in most American cities now, especially on the West Coast, of, like, homeless sweeps, right? Like, there's homeless people sleeping in parks, and there's tents everywhere, and the neighbors complain. And then the police come, and they slash people's tents with razors, and they shoo everybody away, and they arrest some of them. And, like, this is something conservatives are pushing for, right? Like, more homeless sweeps. But it's like... And then what, man? Like, there's four times more homeless people than there are shelter beds in a lot of cities. So, like, there's literally nowhere else for them to go. So you think slashing their tents and bothering them and shooing them away, well, like, literally, what do you expect them to do? Well, the constituents seem to like it. And that really is who, right? That's what this is about. Like, if I'm tough on on the homeless, then, like, yeah, then, like, I'm the tough on homeless guy. And that's good for me. And... And people feel like something's being done, even though we're just further, you know, abusing people. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I get reelected. And again, in that case, not just conservatives. I mean, I, I spent yeah. the, some of the yeah. some of the quarantine on the Upper West Side, staying on the Upper West Side, and uh, there was a massive campaign to prevent them from prevent the city from housing homeless people in the empty hotels up there. That was yes. spearheaded by the very good old you know liberal folks of the of the Upper West Side. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just it's these like id driven policies. Yeah, that are just like I don't want to see it anymore. Yes, but there's no yes. like larger philosophy behind it. Yes, or like really mm-hmm. anything deeper and no sort of thought given to any of the systems that would have created it or like any sort of public health analysis right. of what would actually solve homelessness. It's just like, I saw one yesterday. Like, all right. Yeah. <laughs> well, one thing that I think that QAnon raises is uh, we mentioned earlier at the start of our discussion that at least to some degree, part of the kind of panics we've been discussing were driven by the media, especially just how kind of constrained media was right mm-hmm. again you would yeah you you would hear a story told over and over again for weeks on on network news or you know at the headlines of a newspaper and how do you see like the contemporary panics where it happens much more online in terms of social media message boards and twitter and memes you mentioned already you know has it changed the, the kind of contours of these conspiracy theories or the way these things play out given the different kind of structures involved in terms of the media? I mean, I'll I'll talk about two things that immediately come to mind for me, which is A, that we have much faster and therefore potentially more dangerous crowd surfing. And the thing that comes to mind for that is when people kind of attempting in real time to figure out the identity of of the people responsible for the bombing of the Boston Marathon accidentally Mm -hmm. identified someone uninvolved in it um, and caused a lot of strife for for his yeah. family. A, a classmate of mine. Oh, wow. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's something that I always think of when I'm like, well, you know, crowds have a logic of their own. You can't expect a crowd to behave the way, you know, the same way that a, a small group of people or a person will. Like, they, crowds are their own thing. And I think that, you know, you have that kind of dangerous uncontrollability. And yet at the same time, what I also think of is that, like, if the Tanya Harding scandal were happening right now, or, you know, if we were to be having a large-scale moral panic right now, which we are, then it is within the capacity of some random teenage girl in Nebraska to, like, do a series of TikToks explaining very lucidly and persuasively why she thinks this is bullshit or why she thinks 
the media hasn't thought of this angle, which she is now going to tell you about. And right. if she's making good points and if, you know, the wind is kind of blowing in the right direction, that can go viral and that can affect the entire conversation. And so I feel like, you know, we're living in, to me, a very <laughs> stressful time, but I'm very happy about, you know, the positive capacities that that yeah. are around us. Mm-hmm. Mike, what do you think? I mean, I think... One of the sort of rhetorical tricks of QAnon that I think is really important is they always say, like, go research for yourself. Right. Mm. Go do your research. Right. And <laughs> I have I know people I've interviewed people that are like super hardcore conspiracy theorists and they constantly talk about research. Like I was researching the moon landing. I was mm. researching the JFK and right. the vast abundance of information available on the Internet like makes it gives you this confidence that you're researching and that you're like gathering facts indiscriminately. Yeah. But it also is better at feeding you misinformation all the time. Or the facts right? that you want. Exactly. In in ways right. that are not necessarily perceptible to you. Like you Google totally. JFK assassination fake. Yeah. And like what links are you gonna get? Yeah. Right. You're you're gonna only get conspiracy links. Yeah. In ways that like it makes you think like, well, I was just Googling and the first thing that came up was a thing that said it was fake, right? So it's like it gives you confidence and it gives you misinformation at the same time. And mm-hmm. I think that sort of the crowdsourcing, like phone a friendification of the information environment in America is very scary because at the same time as the right has sort of gotten more entrenched in moral panics, we also have the vilification of credible sources. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That there aren't really sort of referees anymore that like if I say very few children are kidnapped every year and you say 800,000 children are kidnapped every year, there's not like a source that we can point to. Like, oh, this New York Times article says this. And then you'll be like, oh, the New York Times is bullshit. It's owned by Soros. And like, oh, this Snopes (laughs) thing. Oh, no, no, that's owned by Soros too. And like Wikipedia, oh, well, that can be edited by anybody. Like there's no sort of arbiter anymore. And in some ways, like as Sarah said, like in some ways, the sort of mass democratization of information is good, right? That people can push back in a way that they can't. We right. we just did an episode on the James Charles, Tati, Shane Dawson fiasco. And like you have people that can correct information in real time. And that's actually great. But then on the other hand, you just have more misinformation out there. And it's very easy to find. Well, can I ask my final question? And we can yeah. go out on it. Do it. Um, I, I guess I, guess I, th- I, th- I think of this because of... The general ethos of your podcast and also, you know, uh, Sarah's point about like when you need to replace a narrative with something else, it has to be something else that somehow provides soothing to the psychic wounds or ideological um, comforts that are provided by the pre-existing wrong narrative. And I know that Matt had wanted to talk to you guys about the concept of empathy, too, and maybe that can be mm. brought in here. I, I I agree that your show is kind of suffused with empathy, even for people who don't seem to deserve it on first glance. And I wonder what kinds of messages, what kinds of political or cultural offerings do you see as useful or, or, or that might be able to provide that emotional, psychological, and political scaffolding that, that we need to hold up ourselves uh, and our communities um, that are alternatives to these, these panics that are both wrong and have such dire and negative consequences on people's lives? Mm. Big, I huge mean, question. Yeah. yeah, it's good because I do a podcast called Why Our Dads and we have a closing question that is always, who is the daddy in this movie? And so I'm primed 
to answer that. <laughs> um, and I'm like, no, this is, it's a different thing. Um, but I do think that empathy is key to that kind of engagement, right? Because I think that, you know, there's the classic dramatic triangle whose name I forget of like victim, villain, hero. And mm-hmm. we tend to envision ourselves, you know, in one of these roles in whatever story we're in. And I think that consuming media involves the same needs because we consume media because we are we find proxies for ourselves in these stories you know that's why we love the like plucky heroine making it you know yeah she's sandra bullock but she's lonely um (laughs) (laughs) sandra bullock the woman who could sell any premise and so i think that when you know our listeners i think one of the reasons that they listen to this show is that you know it's not just like a vitamin that they are taking to try to be a better citizen. It's because like, if we're telling the story of princess Diana and talking about, you know, how the press did her dirty and how she was not given the tools that she maybe would have had today to express what it was like to be her for much of the time that she spent in the public eye, people are able to be like, yes, I too feel upset about princess Diana and I want good things for her. And I think, one of the you know one of the things that I believe, and that I think a lot of our our listeners end up agreeing with me on if they end up enjoying the show on some level, is that like hearing someone's story and getting fired up on their account feels like you're doing something and you are mm-hmm. doing something. Like I don't think it's an illusory sense of altruism. I think that like you are connecting with you know a sense of the human and you are feeling invested in the way someone was treated. And I think it allows you to recognize that kind of thing happening in real time much better if you've seen how it played out in the past. Mm -hmm. I think there's a huge thing with proportionality. I mean, I think oftentimes the way that bias plays out in media and lack of empathy plays out in media is disproportionate punishment for relatively small slights. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the canonical example is like Monica Lewinsky, who, you know, like she didn't make the best decisions, But ultimately, she was a 22-year-old who had a crush on her boss, and her boss reciprocated, and like she she had an unusually consensual relationship with someone who was, on the whole, more of a serial sexual harasser. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And it's like somehow she became the villain in that story. When like, who hasn't had a crush on their boss when you're 22? And like, who hasn't sort of maybe made some like kind of weird moves at that age to try to get with that person and not necessarily thinking it through? It's like. That's that's what you do when you're 22, yeah. right? And also, he's the fucking president. Like, let's well, yes. just add that in, you know? Just like, <laughs> it, who thing. do we hold to a higher standard? Like, the 22-year-old intern who's like, I think I can make this happen. Or the <laughs> most powerful person in the entire free world. Like, yeah. hmm. And so much, to me, so much of empathy requires, like, admitting that somebody might not have made the best decisions, but also putting those decisions into context. Mm -hmm. And that's the thing that often never happens with the media. There's this binary distinction between like, she's bad and like, Amy Fisher's a Long Island Lolita and like, Joey (laughs) Buttafuoco is the victim. And then you look at the actual story and you're like, "Uh, this is a 35-year-old man who's like sleeping with a 15-year-old and lying to her constantly. And trafficking her while we're on the subject. And like literally trafficking her. The one woman trafficking her. I don't know why she's the bad guy in this. Mm -hmm. Like so much of it is just like, again, this is why it's so important to tell these stories from the beginning Yeah, where so many of them you're like, yeah, sometimes you have a crush on your boss and like you do maybe not the smartest thing, but also like 
We've all been 22. Well, this is also specifically a leitmotif of the 90s and one that I think is a pattern that we are hopefully, I think, much better just through studying how rotely this played out at recognizing what it looks like. But it's like a man builds a huge and incredibly tippy Jenga tower. It is like going to be brought down by the next person who walks past it. A hot woman walks past it. <laughs> Boom. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's exactly yeah. right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what about the limits of empathy? Um, mm. Because I'm, I thought everything you've said has been really lovely, and I think that's, you know, that that approach you take in the show to people who've been maligned, whether it's Monica Lewinsky or Tanya Harding or others, is one of the things that draws me to it, and I'm sure draws many listeners to it. But what about the people who are, you know, what about the QAnon conspiracy theorists? Right. Maybe not Marjorie yeah. Taylor Greene. You know, <laughs> may, maybe not maybe not Anita Bryant or Jerry Falwell or the people in the media who are pushing certain lines. But I feel like, you know, this question of empathy, how much we should try to understand people who yeah. believe harmful things and vote for politicians who are terrible and harmful in their own ways. You know, we're there's this move where we're asked to understand them, whether it's the kind of economic anxiety discourse or, you know, kind of trying to find reasons why people believe and support bad things and bad politicians. You know, that's a tricky question. And I wondered, since we're talking yeah. about empathy, what you thought about approaching it from that angle. Like you, Matt, I grew up in a super duper Christian household. And one of like the main tenets of my moral education was, I mean, I think a subtle idea that like what you do in your professional life and what you do with power is separate from morality, right? This is where we get the stuff of like, oh, he's the CEO of a company that's dumping toxic waste into a river, but he coaches Little League. And like, <laughs> look how great of a father he is. And he adopted kids. Brett Kavanaugh, noted basketball <laughs> yeah. coach. Yeah. I mean, this yes. is the thing. is like, I, I think that the conception, the conservative conception of morality is totally blind to power and deliberately mm, blind yeah. to power of like, that's, mm. that's not in the realm of morality, right? Like what you do with power. And I think it's the most central thing to morality. Like right. what you do with power, how you treat people over whom yes. you have power, that is morality. Doesn't yeah. the Bible agree with you about that? I mean, not that I've read the whole thing. I mean, but I read Matt, the kids can version. Tell us. <laughs> Jesus does have a few things to say about how you treat other people. <laughs> yeah, I've heard that. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so to me, it's like I can on a sort of an individual human level sort of understand the QAnon boomer who goes on YouTube and their recommendations get weirder and weirder. Yeah. And pretty soon they're into the Soros stuff. Like on an individual level, I can like I have relatives that this has happened to. Like I, I can I can sympathize with those people. But somebody like Marjorie Taylor Greene, who uses her power to spread what she knows is misinformation. Right. Like I don't have any sympathy for that person no. and I don't think that it's incumbent on me sure. to have it. Like I think that's the biggest limit yeah. is who has the power in this situation and how are they using their power? And a very moral principle, I think, is holding people with power to account yep. mm -hmm. and knowing, yes. understanding in these situations who like who had the power, Clinton or Lewinsky. Right. right? Mm -hmm. Like it's very important to me to keep our eyes on the prize in these situations that like this is where the moral problem is, is the person who is using their power for something evil. Yeah. And like I'm okay with sort of having that be my limit to empathy while also really empathizing with people like Amy Fisher, who like did some really dumb stuff, mm -hmm. but also like didn't really know what they were getting into and really didn't have any power in the situation. Yeah, yeah. like she shot a woman in the face. Was there mitigation? Yes. yes. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
Well, I have one thought about empathy, which Matt's probably already heard before, but I'll put <laughs> it in here and maybe we'll have maybe we'll have to cut it. But um, I, I I tend to think there is a problem with empathy in even even in its liberal dimensions, um, which is that I think that what empathy calls us to do, which is like imagine ourselves in the situation mm-hmm. uh, that happened and 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 trying and you know putting ourselves in another person's shoes is way way harder than we acknowledge yes <laughs> in the sense oh, that yeah. like we're called to empathy for people say who commit a violent crime right mm-hmm. somebody says well there was really terrible circumstances in their lives and um this terrible thing happened to them, this terrible thing to happen to them, and imagine having to go to prison for the rest of your life, all these things. But most people can't do that. And it's it, and, and what happens is people do a, a, a junk form of empathy where they say, well, if I was in that situation, I just wouldn't do it. I wouldn't mm, yeah. do that. I wouldn't have that problem. I wouldn't have that drug yeah. problem. Um, I wouldn't make that bad investment. I wouldn't uh, buy that thing I can't afford. I wouldn't start having sex with Joey. I wouldn't start having <laughs> sex with Joey. I wouldn't start having sex with the president. And what happens <laughs> is that the false promise of empathy produces basically the opposite outcome. Yeah. Um, and so yeah. in, in the case of poverty, I think this is so important. Matt mm. and I talk a lot about sort of how the moral mythology of poverty is one of the worst but most deeply ingrained concepts in American life, which is the fact that people deserve their dire circumstances. And you might try to think people out of that with empathy by saying, look, if you're in a terrible situation, you might do some things that you wouldn't imagine doing now, but they can't actually think themselves into that situation. So they think, ah, okay, but I wouldn't do that, and I wouldn't do that, and I wouldn't do that. Whereas the alternative could be when it comes to questions of poverty and inequality and criminal justice, the alternative would be let's just talk about what's right and wrong. Mm. Right. Let's talk about what's fair and let's leave the empathy out of it because I don't actually think many people are that good at empathy. And if you can just talk people into, well, this is wrong Mm. um, and look, Poverty is wrong. All these people are poor and suffering, and that's bad. So let's not try to think ourselves into their shoes. Let's just solve this fucking problem. Right. That's my uh-huh. contrary take on empathy. Mm-hmm. Well, this yeah. is why it, it makes me see red, like Mani, when um, we get, and this is like a very, this is a classic true crime term when we talk about people like they have empathy or they don't have empathy right psychopaths have mm-hmm. empathy and i have empathy because i'm normal and it's like where do i keep it like is it in my spleen is it in my brain like <laughs> explain you know and just this idea that empathy and i think that empathy is one of those words that like means so many slightly different things to yeah. so many people that like it, we need much more precise language and like there, you know, and there is more precise terminology, but not that has really uh-huh. made the leap to public discourse the way that it needs to at this point, like the way that we need to be able to talk about, you know, the concept of cognitive empathy, mm. which is, you know, trying to think your way into someone else's shoes being different from other kinds where, for right. example, like if you start crying. I will start crying. That doesn't right. mean I'm a good person. It just means that I do that. <laughs> right, 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 right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. I also, I mean, we just talked about this. We just did an episode about Shannon Faulkner, who was this 18-year-old who tried to get into the Citadel, which at the time was a one of the country's only all-male military institutions. Mm. Oh, and yes. so she sues. She goes through a two-and-a-half-year legal battle. It's crushing. She's getting death threats. It's awful. She finally wins. She shows up at the Citadel, and she quits the first day. 
and like she couldn't handle it and she quits. And so this was put into the frame of like this woman is bringing everybody else down and she fought for two and a half years and she can't even do the push-ups or whatever. It's interesting because I was a female child at the moment that happened. And I remember running in from playing and I was like, mommy, I feel a sudden sharp pain as if my value in the society is decreasing. But why? <laughs> she was like, somewhere in South Carolina, a woman quit a clearly abusive military academy that she never <laughs> said she was going to approve she could graduate from, only that she had the right to attend. And I was like, oh, that explains it. Well, this is the thing is that... It I mean, this is another sort of hallmark, I think, of 90s trash media is that we keep building up these symbols, right? That like this woman, this 20-year-old woman is is a symbol of women trying to get into male-only spaces. And after we built her up as a symbol, when her individual story sort of falls apart mm. in this unsatisfactory way, we're like, well, for a while there, we thought that women deserved equality with men, but... You know, Shannon got heat stroke and Shannon quit. Yeah. So yeah. I guess it doesn't like we skip past the principle of like, well, obviously, like every institution that women have joined, they've done fine in historically. So it's it's absurd that this right. is even a court case in the 90s, right? Like 20 years after West Point integrated gender gender wise. All of a sudden, it's like we have the symbol and now everything lives or dies on the strength of that symbol. Right. Mm -hmm. And so on yeah. some level, I do actually agree with it. That, like you don't have to empathize with Shannon and you don't even have to like Shannon. Like maybe you think Shannon sucks. Yeah. But the fundamental underlying claim is that like women should be able to access these spaces. Right. Mm -hmm. Which is the problem with turning every major issue into a parable, which we really yes. like yeah. I hope we <laughs> oh, do God. less than we did in the 90s. Like that does mm. seem to have been all we knew how to do at the time. Yeah. <laughs> well, may maybe to close out on a note of agreement, uh, we just published an essay at Commonweal uh, on someone who was writing his dissertation on empathy. Mm. And as part of his, uh, I think he was focusing on Shakespeare and Shakespeare's ability to, you know, populate his plays with so many different types of characters. And to kind of explore how he might have done that, this guy undertook acting lessons, the Meisner mm. um, method. And he basically lands. Uh, at the end of the essay by saying, you know, empathy is dangerous. Like there are mm. certain mm. Mo moral dispositions you don't want to think your way into right. for one thing. Mm. Right. And he says, second of all, democracy doesn't require empathy. It, as Michael was just saying, maybe it just means we have to treat our fellow citizens fairly and decently, even if we don't like them Empathize. or have some right. kind of fellow feeling for them. I mean, I certainly talk endless trash about America's legal system, but deep down inside secretly, I am a constitution stan, mm. and I think one of the overlooked wonderful things about living in a nation of laws, which I know, you know, the right loves to talk about all the time as if they know what that <laughs> means, is not just that you get to lock people up all the time, but also that you are required to treat your fellow humans in a way that is reflective of their human rights, even if you don't feel like it. Like that's yeah. one of the core concepts uh -huh. yes. of living within a civilization. <laughs> so it's more I'm it's for more it. than a feeling. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And as for civilization, as 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 Gandhi said, it would be a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> I guess he said that of Western civilization. Yeah, well, yes. you know, but it would be a good idea. I hope we try it someday. Yeah, you know? Do it. I'm looking forward to it. Well, you yeah. guys, this was so fun for me. Uh, and it's also like, it's great because it was like, I literally just became a huge fan of your podcast in the past hey. couple of weeks. And Aww. so I was just like, 
I got that great feeling of like listening to you and deciding that you were my friends in my head and then getting to talk to you just a few days later. So I had such a great time and you're, you're both wonderful. Me too. And especially since, you know, I no longer get to go out and like drink too much coffee and then worry that I talked too much to someone. Now I get to do that with podcasts and, um, and my brain is just like bouncing around cyberspace. So yeah, we're friends now. Sweet. Yeah. The trick is for your parasocial relationships to eventually replace your actual relationships. Yeah. That's what I'm going for. I think that my boyfriend, Seth Myers and I have accomplished that. Yeah. Yeah. You guys are doing great. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> well, I hope all of our listeners will check out You're Wrong About if they haven't already. Um, thank you so much for coming on Know Your Enemy. And, uh, Well, maybe after this is all over. I know Michael and I have plans to get a beer. Sarah, if you're ever in New York, please come hang out. Someday I will be again. I don't know if it'll be underwater or what, but if it is, I'll just put on my snorkel and swim over and we'll have a great time. (laughs) Perfect. Alrighty. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Bye.